Hello. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. I'm David Osman, and with me today is William Hess of PRC Macro. Our subject for this podcast is Where Next for China's Big Bang Policy Reforms? The Independent Research Forum promotes a wide range of high-quality independent research providers from around the world, both macro and micro, some stock-specific, some sector-specific, some country-specific, many global, and all investment-related. Global investors are becoming increasingly concerned about the recent policy developments in China, with President Xi Jinping introducing a series of measures that are intended to achieve a fundamental restructuring of parts of the private sector of the Chinese economy. Will these big bang policy reforms deliver Xi Jinping's common prosperity agenda? Will Xi's increasingly authoritarian regime eventually create a vibrant and fairer society or cause a leap backwards towards a sluggish totalitarian economy? To discuss these policy issues and the outlook for investment in China, I am very pleased that we are joined today by William Hess, who along with Song Gao, is one of the two co-CEOs and co-heads of research at PRC Macro, which is based in Beijing and New York. Before PRC Macro was established in 2012, William was president of China Monitor, a platform for China macroeconomic and industry analysis and forecasting. He is also a former director of sovereign and international public finance ratings with Standard & Poor's, and a former general manager with Global Insight. William, welcome back. Well, thanks very much for having us back on the IRF podcast. Let's begin with a brief introduction to the PRC Macro and the service that you provide to your clients across the world. Sure. Uh, so PRC Macro is a China-focused macro political advisory firm, and we work with hedge funds and institutional asset managers on understanding uh, political and policy dynamics in China and using that to read through the markets and assess whether you know, various China narratives are being priced uh, correctly. So we work with a lot with uh, global macro focused managers, but also with some geographically uh, and country focused managers as well. So, William, after several decades of frantic growth, some people fear that China's rapid rate of economic expansion will slow to a pedestrian pace in the years ahead. Why might this happen? Are China's demographic trends the main reason, or are there other important factors? Sure. You know, I think to answer your question directly, we're almost certainly going to see growth rates in China dip into the 5 and 4% range, purely as a function of structural factors. So you know, long before COVID uh, and the current round of reforms in China, uh, there, there was already a secular slowdown underway. You know, however, you know, the party still adheres to so-called bottom line thinking. Uh, which means that employment and stability are paramount. So there's a floor as to what they're willing to accept. Um, so as important as this wave of reforms we're going to discuss today are, China's still a pretty long way uh, from reform at all costs. Now, as you mentioned demographics, and demographics is a huge piece of this equation. And I, I don't think analysts fully appreciate the implications of not just a shrinking workforce, but also a shrinking population in absolute terms, and what that means for the economy and domestic asset prices. 
Um, so this is a very big deal and one that I think has caused a fair amount of actual panic in policymaking circles. They wouldn't disclose this uh, publicly, of course. Uh, but just you know, really imagine that in 40 years, the Chinese population will be hundreds of millions of people smaller than it is now. Uh, I, I really don't think the implications of that have, have sunk in yet. So, for example, it's hard to see how property prices in overbuilt third and fourth tier cities uh, staying where they are or for you know, nominal interest rates to break out of the pattern of, of lower highs and lower lows uh, that we've seen uh, over the past uh, couple of cycles. Um, so the party leadership knows that in order to prevent the property sector from taking the economy and themselves hostage, they have to move away from this land intensive mode of growth. Um, so this includes property and also infrastructure. Uh, they probably should have tried this in a lot of things with, uh, let's say, more enthusiasm about 10 years ago, but uh, they didn't. So here we are. Um, so as we're seeing now with Evergrande and other troubled developers, a big piece of the old model or the current model, rather, was uh, for developers to take out bank loans, to buy land from local governments for the construction of, of housing that they were probably never going to finish. And to keep the cycle going, they just kept on taking out, taking out more debt to buy more land as collateral so they could do it all over again. So you see where that goes. So the dependence on the land-based economy has only increased over time. And so taking the demographics into consideration, to us, the commercial property sector looks more than maxed out. You know, just some, some numbers for reference. Uh, uh, last year, developers started construction on 1.6 billion square meters of residential property, give or take. So we estimate that the rigid demand, meaning you know, demand from families and nearly, or nearly urbanized people, is falling is probably only around 700 million square meters. So this is a big gap that's been widening over the years. And so risk and leverage and all those problems have accompanied that. So the big trick for the leadership now is to how to come up with adequate offsets uh, for lost activity and fiscal revenues, uh, even in the short term. So you know, back to your question, uh, we see the potential for big drags on growth coming from new policy constraints and also from um, some political uncertainty. So what are Xi Jinping's big bang policy reforms why are they being introduced now? Sure. Well, you know, when we think of big bang policy reforms, I think many usually think first of you know, price-based reforms in the former Soviet Union and Poland and some others you know, to rebalance incentives that drive resource allocations and help to better balance supply and demand. Um, you know, China, as you cited, you know, is going in the opposite direction, using stronger state intervention where it comes to prices and incentives and using directed resource allocations uh, with the premise that this is necessary to flatten distributions of income and wealth and then doing so, you know, hopefully improve the sustainability of growth. So as a point of context, I, I would say this is China's alternative to MMT or variations there too in the West, you know, which mostly involve monetized fiscal deficits to expand social welfare programs. So the, the party uh, and the government in China is unwilling to assume you know, direct responsibility on its own balance sheet for the cost of expanding access to social services uh, and, and expanding the middle class. So it's essentially looking to tax what it sees as the excesses of the previous growth model. And this includes developers and internet billionaires and many others who are going to have to pay, pay back to society. Uh, so Beijing is intent on maintaining the appearance of contained government deficits that may be somewhat comical, but really the only way to do that is to extract the resources it needs uh, from the real economy. Um, I should also mention that, you know, we see China's digital currency or DCEP as a very big part of the solution. Uh, and so in many ways, we see it as the end game for PBOC's so-called modern monetary framework uh, and as a solution to China's, China's fiscal woes. Um, so this is, that's a longer conversation that hopefully we can have in the future. So for now, you know, common prosperity and these big bang reforms as part of what we see as a fiscal movement. And this is a function of, you know, number one, a horrible demographic profile. Uh, two, you know, chronic underinvestment over time in public pensions and public services capacity. Uh, so China faces just about as bad a fiscal outlook as any other large economy in the world. So 
if fiscal sustainability is a precondition for the sustainability of growth, you know, something has to change and has to change in a big way. Uh, hence what we think are a series of you know, big bang reforms, which are just getting started. And what factors will determine whether the common prosperity agenda will succeed or fail? Uh, well, you know, first, it's not really part of the common prosperity agenda directly. But, you know, I think for President Xi, one very important measure of his tenure and his place in history will be whether he retakes Taiwan. Uh, so if he does that, um, it'll justify or really overshadow any economic pain that he inflicts with the common prosperity agenda. So this is going to require a lot of investment in the military industrial complex. And, and uh, this is where uh, this political and geopolitical goal intersects with the economic agenda. Uh, but so more in, in strictly economic terms, in terms of measures of success for common prosperity, first, I would say, you know, whether there's adequate capex in progress with, with advancing strategic uh, industrial agendas. So we see common prosperity uh, as an effort to maximize investment in strategic areas of the economy, not necessarily maximizing improvements to income and wealth distribution. So related to that, I think another measure of success is whether there's adequate progress on increasing China's tech independence. Uh, as well as relative tech and military capabilities vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. And so finally, I would say whether or not the middle class expands and whether real and disposable incomes increase. Um, so our research has shown that in addition to China's horrible demographic outlook, the size of the middle class has actually been shrinking, you know, held, hence the overall uh, alarm bells in Beijing. How urgent is the Taiwan question for Xi Jinping? Is it something where he just needs to keep moving in the right direction? Or is it something that has to be achieved by a certain date? Sure. I think the the outside goal of, of trying to unify China is 2035. Uh, realistically, uh, we think that they, they'll try to achieve it before then. Uh, and so the question is, you know, does this happen all at once or does this happen as a function of attrition? And gradually over time, you know, this effort uh, or, or pattern of ratcheting up measures on uh, economic measures and, and, and military tensions uh, has the effect of, of pushing in, in that direction. So I would say, you know, somewhere in the early 2030s is when I think so many of the, the planners in Beijing would hope to see some material progress in that direction. But you know, as I just mentioned, I think, you know, looking at President Xi's place in history uh, and where I think he wants to be remembered, you know, if he does, if he doesn't retake Taiwan uh, during his uh, political tenure or at least during his direct or indirect uh, rule, uh, I think that'll that'll be a big uh, knock on his place in history. So that that to me seems like one of his main objectives politically uh, that, that we should look out for during the next decade. Now, if China's big bang policy reforms continue and eventually succeed in rebalancing the Chinese economy, which sectors will be the main beneficiaries? In the short term, we're looking at the consumer staples uh, sector, looking at domestic brands uh, that are part of uh, import substitution and tech independence, also looking at the military industrial complex. We also think that this overall agenda is bullish for fixed income in the form of a policy bank and government bonds. Uh, nominal interest rates should probably be heading lower in China, or at least will be capped to the upside. Uh, so this kind of backdrop, this political backdrop, is also beneficial for large cap SOEs on a valuation basis. And because if, whenever we see liquidity flowing out of property in, in large volumes, that tends to benefit you know, more liquid parts of Chinese equity markets. And right now, and recently, that's been large cap SOEs. So politically, uh, the state economy and state-owned firms in general should benefit uh, from a resurgence in state intervention accompanying these big bang reforms. 
Uh, in the short term, we don't see this all as a, as a positive for commodities. Too much focus on supply side constraints, uh, which are price positive, you know, have overlooked the potential for what we, what we see as demand side weakness as China tries to reorient its economic model away from this property and land uh, dependent economy. So uh, remember that with any big bang reforms, there's usually an adjustment phase during which prices have to adjust uh, and before markets uh, and sentiment stabilize. So this is where uh, we, we think we are right now in China, where we're at the very early stages of this process. So I think it's reasonable to assume that we're going to see some more market jitters and some more sentiment uh, problems um, as this agenda really gets rolled out and, and uh, some of the specifics also come out. In a more hostile and bipolar world... Xi's common prosperity agenda is causing various parts of China's private sector economy to experience considerable difficulties, not least in the education, entertainment, media, property and technology sectors. Does this suggest that you cannot run an open and innovative 21st century economy with 19th century political software? This is a question where it certainly depends on on which side of the table you're sitting on. So I think for policymakers, uh, they would say that you know the hostile environment that you mentioned, uh, the U.S. tech embargo, etc., that's uh, as much of a rationale and justification as the government needs to to pursue more intervention and more intervention to support and protect SOEs and to support and protect the development of industries, strategic industries within the Chinese economy. So for, I think from their perspective, in a hostile world, that means that that they need they see that as a rationale and justification for playing a larger role in trying to steer the economy. Now, if you're on the other side of the table and you're looking at this uh, from the, the perspective of those sectors which have been hit hard by these kinds of reforms, obviously it's a very different uh, kind of equation. You know, I think what, what the government would like to see, and, and let's take the case of uh, large online tech platforms as a, as a reference case, uh, what they'd like to see is greater investment in hard tech, in, in manufacturing, in hard tech, and in, in hard technologies, uh, less so in services-oriented uh, internet platforms. And so you see already that uh, the, the big tech firms in China are setting up new funds to invest in, invest in hard tech. That means in hardware, in 5G, and everything that supports the, the digital economy, rather than just focusing on uh, creating new ways to sell uh, consumers you know, goods and services. So that, I think, is really the, the, the policy direction where they want to push these firms uh, to go into. Uh, now, that process is one that um, is not very welcoming and not very uh, friendly to to some very well-known firms. And so it has destroyed a large amount of market cap, if, depending on if looking at the education sector, looking at online platforms. I think the government is unapologetic about that uh, in, the sh- in the short term, because for them, they, they think this is a necessary transition uh, to strengthen China and tre- strengthen China's technological capabilities in what it sees as a hostile world. And so the, the put now to the private sector and these, these very well-known firms is that you have to get on board with this new agenda. And if you do, you know, that ends up being very, I think, positive for the long-term growth. But again, as I mentioned, we're in, in the early stages of this process. Uh, we're trying to re- rebalance incentives and sentiment. Uh, and so we haven't really hit the bottom yet where it comes to uh, initial policy reforms, which are, are seen perceived very negatively uh, from the perspective of, of uh, investors and, and markets, as well they should be. Uh, so, I, But I think we have to keep our eye on what, what the end game here and how and when you know, sentiment here might bottom where it comes to some of these sectors which have been sold heavily in response to some of these changes. But long term, 
the real goal here is not to weaken these firms, but to strengthen them to make sure that they're on on, on the same page as, as the industrial planners. Uh, and, and if they are, then you know they're going to be essentially monopolies in China in, in the, the world's largest digital market. So I think investors have to keep in mind that there's going to be a bottom here at some point for China tech, just as a kind of a test case for this reform process. Given what you said earlier about Taiwan, and given the importance of the semiconductor industry, to what extent would it be easier for China to establish closer ties with Taiwan if it was able to offer a federal system rather than a one country, two systems, which in Hong Kong has not worked out particularly well in recent times? Yeah, I think on paper, that would seem to be a, a way forward, uh, something where there would be less resistance. Uh, at this point, however, I think it's it's untenable. Uh, I don't think that many interest groups in Taiwan would ever accept accept that, based especially based on the recent experience of Hong Kong, where for for some time, you know, China, the mainland was promoting basically one country, two systems as, as a reference point for Taiwan. That turned in, in a direction which I think is not favorable to that outcome for using that as a way to, to uh, resolve the uh, political questions between uh, the mainland and Taiwan. So I, I think it's, it's, um, it's a situation where, you know, politics is, is paramount. And so from the, the mainland's perspective, politics is always number one. Uh, and so uh, that kind of a federal solution uh, or call it, put another way, that's uh, a variation on, on, on power sharing is one where uh, it doesn't seem to fit with the, the current dynamics or the dynamics we've seen vis-a-vis uh, the mainland and, and Hong Kong. Um, so, so I think there are a lot of uh, possibilities on paper, but uh, I think on, in political terms, there are things that uh, both sides are unwilling to accept. And so that, that leaves us where we are with the current uh, tensions in the Taiwan Straits, which we're likely to con- see continue for, for years to come. And, and just turning back uh, to um, the, the problems in the China property sector uh, and the importance that that has for Chinese growth going forward, particularly the problems being experienced by China Evergrande and other highly leveraged property developers, and also the deteriorating outlook for local government finances uh, as a result of the outlook for land sales. Do you expect China to introduce a nationwide property tax in the next one to three years? Well, a property tax for China is inevitable. Um, I think it's very likely to come out in the next year. Uh, However, this is something they've been trying for at least 10 years. Uh, And so every time they have in the past, it's encountered some very significant resistance. call it uh, vested interest groups and um, uh, maybe conflicts of interest within the, the political system, there's been opposition to, to a property tax. So uh, we are seeing expanded trials of property taxes nationwide. We expect this to become a, more of a national policy um, within the next year to 18 months. Uh, but you know, based on, on the trials we've seen so far, um, the actual scale or scope of the tax in terms of, of the proportion of the base of assets that, that might be taxed is actually been very, very small. So relative to the fiscal challenges that China faces, uh, so far the property tax, as it's been discussed and, and, and implemented on a trial basis in certain cities, um, it doesn't look like much of a solution to China's long-term fiscal woes. Um, so you, know, you mentioned the relationship between the property sector and land sales and local government finances. In 2020, uh, local governments took in almost nine and a half trillion RMB. In, in land sale revenue. So that's basically 10% of GDP equivalent. Uh, and so, 
if looking forward, the property sector, the commercial property sector is overbuilt and we're not going to see expanding land sales forever like we have over the, over the past five years and land sale revenue actually starts to shrink, that creates a very large hole, uh, both in terms of, of uh, absolute uh, local government revenues, also where uh, incremental uh, spending comes from every year. And so for the past five years, a big piece of that has been linked to land sales, local government revenues they take in and they spend on other stuff. Uh, that's, that's now apparently over. So if that's the case, you know, where do you make up for that? On, on that basis, a property tax would have to move into the area of, say, two, three, four trillion RMB per year to be really be meaningful to change that equation. As has been discussed so far, you know, the, the impact of the trials would be much, much smaller. Even a national tax based on the, the current trials would lead to fiscal revenues of a much smaller scale than, than would be necessary to offset what uh, the loss revenue losses would be from uh, a shrinking uh, land-based economy. So given these big bang reforms, given the short-term economic disruption, given the longer-term demographic trends, what do you see as the medium-term outlook for the Chinese currency? Do you expect it to be on a trend of appreciation or depreciation over the next few years? Sure. So for the currency... The medium term, I think, is becoming more difficult to, to forecast. So if looking more more short term, I would say that currently China is facing outflow pressures as a function of the cycle and uh, as a function of political pressures. Uh, but looking at the charts for CNY and CNH in recent months, uh, this has meant a return to what we see as tacit management of dollar CNY. Now, this has been helped by a strong trade surplus and in capital inflows. Uh, but as the cycle turns uh, and if external flows reverse, you know, this should add to pressure on the currency to correct or weaken. Um, so if we are at the peak of the commodity cycle, as we think we are for now, this also means that the role of the currency in blunting the effects of imported inflation is also reduced, and this should create room for the currency to weaken. Um, so this is something where the currency has been looked to as a bit of a shock absorber, not necessarily to stimulate exports, uh, but to maintain stability in domestic financial markets, and also perhaps as a way to blunt some of the effects of imported inflation. Uh, so in the short term, you know, absent intervention, absent efforts to prop up the economy, uh, prop up the currency, you know, I think eventually these these outflow pressures and the effects of of the fundamentals will create pressure for the currency to weaken relative to the dollar. Uh, in the medium term, I think it really de depends on uh, how far they push with this common prosperity agenda, what the feedbacks are, uh, and whether or not they kind of change course or pivot away from some of the reforms that have been tried uh, and then don't work out so well. So uh, short term, I think we, we can have a good read on the currency. But in the medium term, I think there are a lot of, of question marks out there which will impact you know, kind of a directional judgment as to where the currency is going. William, thank you for this fascinating insight into the PRC Macro Advisory Service and the insightful way that you have explained what's going on in China at present time. If we had more time, it would be interesting to discuss in more detail China's international ambitions and the outlook for Sino-US relations. The Independent Research Forum is offering a short trial to the PRC Macro Service and can provide details of how to subscribe to the full service. More information is available on request from the Independent Research Forum. Many thanks for listening to this IRF podcast with William Hess of PRC Macro.